So in chapter 34, we see God revealing His glory to Moses. On the mountain, He comes to meet with God there. Moses is hid in the cleft of a rock and God announces His name. This is the stunning vision that God gives to him. The Lord, the Lord, a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping that steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is kind of a high point in the Exodus. There on the mountain, God revealing Himself. And one reason this is a high point in Exodus is because it comes in the face of sin and idolatry. In the face of that, God doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm moving away from you and, and, and it's over. No, this, this whole situation gets mediated. Right? And God says, I'm going to give you more of me, not less. This is how gracious God is. I'm going to give you more of me in the face of this, not less. And last week we looked and saw how the glory of God went in the, the tent of meeting where Moses received instruction from the Lord and met with Him and then He went to the people and there we saw the issue was glory. The issue was glory. In 2 Corinthians 3, we, we read, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And then we read, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We saw through Exodus 34 that all this stuff lands in Jesus. We saw that we're to sit in in His face, in His presence. Exodus 34, and and in fact, all of Exodus is to, to take us to Christ, the greater glory. So we come to an end in our Exodus study this week and, and next week. Let's keep that in mind. This is all designed to give us a a greater glimpse of what life is like in the presence of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the lens that we have to have today as we approach this section of Exodus. In the face of sin, God has given more, not less. God has revealed His glory. It was veiled in Moses and made fully known in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's the the question that we come to for our purposes today. What has the grace of God meant in your life? What has the grace of God done in you? What has the grace of God in you caused you to do different? How has God's revealing of Himself shaped your life? Today we'll see three things that the grace of God does in Israel and hopefully learn some lessons 
that should serve as guides for us as a church and us as individuals as we consider what faith looks like in action. The first is this, God's grace creates radical generosity. God's grace creates radical generosity. Second, God's grace means giving not just what we have, but also what we do. God's grace means giving not just what we have, but also what we do. And third, God's grace lived out by faith will produce obedience will produce obedience. First, God's grace creates radical generosity. First, notice that this text is largely a repeat of 25 through 31. Chapters 25 through 31 talk about the construction of the tabernacle in great detail, in painstaking detail, because it's a highlight. This is where God is going to come and live and dwell with His people. It should take great detail. Then we have 32 through 34, we have the golden calf incident, God revealing Himself, revealing more of His name, not less. And then we have the the back end of that here, Uh, these instructions are repeated. This is the actual building of it, this is the doing of it. Anytime something is mentioned twice, we should pay attention, especially when it's chapters and chapters long. So this is a high point in Exodus. This is God tabernacling with His people. It's the goal of all of history. Right? God being with us. The hope of glory. It being repeated twice is like a highlighter over this whole section. You should highlight it. This means something. We looked at 25 through 31. We talked about the tabernacle and and John 1 showing how Jesus fulfills the the tabernacle, how He tabernacled among us, John says. And He, Jesus, revealed His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. We saw that the tabernacle and, and the temple all point to Jesus Christ. So here we come to the building of the temple, 35 through 40. Before the people of Israel get to work, it's uh, it's noted by Moses, before they start all this work, this is about to be a busy season in the life of the people, the first thing he says is, remember that you have rest in God. Before they even start work, he doesn't put it at the end, he puts it at the beginning. He's like, hey, going into this big project... Going into this next big thing that you have coming on the horizon of your life. Going into this next season of your life as a people. Remember that you have rest in God. Remember that. Not while you're in the middle of it. Remember going into that season. Remember that you have Sabbath rest in God. Then the command to get to it. This is the thing that the Lord commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart, and let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and all the rest. Gather up materials. Start bringing stuff. We need stuff to make this. God has told us to make it. Bring stuff. 
Let me ask you, why would a people who've been in bondage for over 400 years, the slave class, the lowest class in Egypt, why would they have these things at home? Why would they have brooches and rings and arm rings and necklaces? Why would they have gold and silver? Why would they have fine wood, acacia wood? Why would they have these things? They were slaves. You remember what happened when they left? God gave them this little instruction. At the time, it sounds kind of weird. Like, hey, go ask your neighbor for what they have. Do you remember that? This is right before they're going to leave Egypt. Hey, go ask your neighbor to give you what they have. And guess what? They did. They did. The text says, in this way, God plundered Egypt. What does a divine warrior do who's coming in to take his people out, to take his child home? He, he takes complete and total victory, nothing less. So when Israel left, they left completely and with all the treasure of Egypt on them. Trinkets are mentioned several times. They left with treasures and lots and lots of it. This is key. This is vital when we think about giving at any time. When we think about generosity at any time. And it's this simple principle that we all should know very well. It's this, all the treasure of heaven and earth belong to God. It's His. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, God says, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. All the treasury belongs to God. Moving on to some observations about giving here. Everything we have, we have because of the sovereign good pleasure of God. This is a hard thing to maintain in our lives. The things that we have, the possessions that we have, the money, the jobs, the vehicles, the, the houses, we have because of God. They're His. Another observation, building the tabernacle required large numbers of people, materials, and skills, and God supplied His people with everything needed to do the job. Do you know this general pr principle applies to the church as well? That God supplies the church, His body, with all the skills and things that we need as the people of God. When we get together in worship, when we get together as friends, when we engage our community, we don't, we don't think first and foremost of, man, if we only had this, then we would arrive. God gives us what we need to minister to one another. Do you know that you have been given gifts to deploy in the service of the church? 
Romans 12 says we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Again, these gifts and contributions arose out of the grace of God revealed to them. Paul is saying we have gifts that have been given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We don't all have the same gift. Praise the Lord. We don't all have the same gift. But He's given us what we need. The third observation is giving to God is from the heart. This phrase is repeated over and over in this section. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred Him and everyone whose spirit moved Him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garment. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects. Every man dedicated an offering of gold to the Lord. The heart is at the center here of worship. It's that which God desires of us. We live and speak and act and give or withhold. We love and bless or curse from the heart. Our lives are lived from that place of the heart. When we give to the church, what does our heart say? You read this quote from Robert Murray McShane, a young Scottish minister. He wrote this, some hard words. I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you on that great day. I fear there are many in my hearing who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money." He sees giving as an overflow of a transformed heart. He sees generosity as having been formed in the people because Christ was formed in them first. We give as an overflow of the heart. What affected that change in Israel? Just a few chapters earlier, they were giving, it wasn't a ton of stuff, but they were giving to the contribution and the making of an idol. But here we see an overwhelming amount of stuff come in. My contention is this, that it's the grace of God and Him revealing Himself to this idolatrous people more and not less. And in that context, they were overwhelmed by the grace of God. They couldn't believe it. Hey, God could have divorced them. He could have left them. He could have said, hey, you guys load up your Winnebago and you go take the land by yourself. I'm going back. That's not what God does. Knowing that they deserve this divorce, knowing that they deserve really to be consumed by God and receiving grace and mercy had transformed them. It had shaped their lives. What about us? 
2 Corinthians 9 says, Do not give grudgingly or of necessity, but let everyone give according to according as he purposes in his own heart, for God loves a cheerful giver. I love that. It's a it's a the term cheerful means hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. You gave what? Hilarious. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. God loves a hilarious giver. So the question comes to your heart and to my heart, how do we view the grace of God in Christ? What has that grace wrought in us? Has it formed us into cheerful givers? Hilarious givers. We know that the richest of all, God Himself in Christ became poor so that we who are the poorest of all in sin and death, God came, the rich came, and and became poor so that we who are poor might be rich in Him. What does that do to us? What does that mean for our lives? Get a little snapshot of this. Demiron's been in Acts studying and has reminded me of this over the past few weeks. And it's beautiful, Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The gospel of Jesus Christ brought radical generosity to the early church. This is a result of the gospel. Jesus had ascended into heaven and had given His Spirit. And the people were believing by hundreds and thousands and the church was growing and one mark of the church was hilarious generosity. One final note on generosity, 36, 4-6 is pretty hilarious to me. It's this, everybody kept giving so much that one day the artists are like, that's enough! They went to Moses and said, hey, cut it out. So the, the, the guy over there working with gold said, dude, you cannot bring any more gold into my shop. It won't fit. It's taken up too much room. The guy working with silver, he said the same. The, the guys and women working with the, the material for the curtains and the hangings, they said the same. All of them came to Moses and said, enough, tell them to stop. That's the crazy generosity wrought from the grace of God. There is no lack. There is no lack. This is what God's grace does in them. They, they, they opened up the tap and it just kept coming and kept pouring in until he had to make an announcement. Hey, send out a memo. Tell them to quit. Imagine if the church, the worldwide church had that problem. Imagine if our community had that that problem. Where there's need and this church, Grace Presbyterian, could be a part of meeting that need. Hey, that's too much. You You gotta quit. Turn off the spigot. It's too much. Kind of hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver.
to God's grace means giving not just what we have, our possessions, but our work. This is the first mention in the Bible, by the way, of someone being filled with the Spirit of God towards a purpose. You're going to see that through the rest of the Old Testament. Through the judges and the kings and the prophets. All of these will be, the the Spirit of God will fill them and they will accomplish a, a purpose. And here you see that happen to artists. Artists. Phil Riken says, God takes pleasure in aesthetic beauty. He would not settle for bad art. God appreciates art. Puritan Samuel Mather says, All the arts are nothing else but beams and rays of the wisdom of the first being in the creatures. Shining and reflecting upon the glass of man's understanding. And as from him they come, so to him they tend. All these skills, these arts, these crafts come from God. And so rightly deployed among men to God they tend. I love that. Art and skill are here in the tabernacle. It comes from God and it tends toward God. For much of history, secular work has been considered somehow less than or more worldly than other forms of work in the church or in the realm of the spiritual somehow. The first time, again, that the Spirit of God came on someone in Scripture for a specific task is for a craftsman. God doesn't denigrate work. He honors it. He honors it. He holds it up and says it's right and good. Not just Moses. The people who are building and working with their hands and producing for others. Luther said, therefore I advise no one to enter any religious order or priesthood unless he is holy and arduous. They may be unless he is, sorry, forearmed with the knowledge and understands that the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. The grace of God doesn't just matter in my occupation. It matters in yours. It doesn't just matter in in what we're doing today, this morning. It matters throughout the week and how we go about doing the things that God has given us to do. God holds up work as good. This goes back to the garden. He's made us and designed us for it. Calvin says, quote, We know that people who were created for the express purpose of being employed in labor of various kinds, and that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when every person applies diligently to his or her own calling and endeavors to live in such a manner as to contribute to the general advantage, end quote. God doesn't just sanctify spiritual as good work. It's not true. You see here that people who work with metal, welders, people who work with 
with wood, carpenters, weavers making cloth, seamstresses sewing it, craftsmen with fine jewels and gold, all right and good and deployed in the service of God. Ahuliab and Bezalel, skilled craftsmen, who put this heavenly vision of God meeting with people in this earthly place, this Edenic place that would face east, and for the rest of Israel's history leading up to Jesus, would point them back to Eden, back to a right and restored relationship with God. To make and craft and build this place, there were artisans. Oholiab and Bezalel. Believers, all believers are to be salt and light in the world. We do this through ordinary faithfulness. Ordinary faithfulness. I love 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and aspire to live quiet and to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. A quiet, faithful, hard-working life in the Thessalonian epistle is mission. It's mission. So that others will look and see, oh, you're, you're just faithful. You love God. You're diligent in your work. And we might look at that and cheapen it and and God's Word holds it up as glorious. Quiet and godly lives. Diligent at your work so that outsiders would look and see the profound beauty and glory of God. God dignifies your work. Hard work and any work is mission. The way we go about our work says something about what we believe about God and why we're put here on this earth. Back to Exodus, I want to point out that Moses again spends time in this section pointing out the work and skill of women. If you remember, our text opens up in Exodus 1, Exodus 2, and we see uh, all these cosmic events going on, right? And in the middle of that, we have an unnamed Pharaoh who's turning his back on the people, and we have two named Hebrew midwives. Do you remember that? Please tell me you remember that. That's that's an important part of this whole story. Shipra and Pua, there they are. They're named when Pharaoh goes unnamed. And here at the end of the narrative, when all this is coming together and God is coming to dwell with His people, He honors the work and skill of women. Verse 22, So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, and brought all these things. Verse 25, And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun, blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. Verse 26, All the women whose hearts were stirred stirred in them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. All men and women, verse 29, the people of Israel whose hearts moved in them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded. This is worth observing. 
Again, at the very beginning of the narrative of Exodus, and here at the end where they're meeting with God, He is dignifying women in Israel. It's in the text. These things don't just apply to men. They apply also to women. So God's grace results in a generous life by both men and women in Israel. Generous not just with their money, not just hilarious givers, but also those who were ordinarily faithful with what they were to do. They were skilled with their hands. Lastly, God's grace lived out by faith will produce obedience. We already mentioned this, but what produces in us real and lasting change? Remember we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness leads to repentance. His overwhelming grace is what would make out of a stubborn and rebellious people an obedient people. Again, God could have rightly and justly divorced the nation at Sinai, but He didn't. He didn't consume them in His wrath. Some died. Brother did kill brother. We saw the ordination of the Levites. It was bloody, but God didn't do that to the entire nation. He spared them. Then in astounding grace, He announces who He is. And then seven times in chapters in chapter 39 we see as things are being built this phrase, just as the Lord had commanded. Just as the Lord had commanded seven times, they made this thing just as God had said. Then you get to chapter 40 where the tabernacle is constructed, not just the priest's clothing, but the the construction itself. Again, seven times, just as the Lord had commanded. It's a powerful example of God's grace leading to obedience. When God sees work done in His way, it's blessed. There's so many ways we could apply this. The first is this, know that Christ has fully obeyed in our place. If you're here today and you're wondering about this gospel stuff, you're wondering about Jesus, hear me closely. He fulfilled everything for us. We call this the active obedience of Christ. He obeyed everything given by the Father to do. He has done for us. Jesus obeyed perfectly in our place. In Christ... We are in the beloved Son of God in whom God the Father is well pleased. In Christ, God is well pleased with us. In Christ, we've done enough. Do you want to be pleasing to God? Fly to Christ. Do you want perfect obedience before The holy God of gods, hide yourself in Christ. 
Do you want a blessing of God pronounced over you? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be a part of the covenant community of the blessed Lord? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And also in our New Testament reading, we heard Jesus say that if anyone loves Him, then that person will obey His teaching. I saw a thing about this uh, this week by Brian Chapel, and he said what my heart first tells me on that. It, it can sound a little bit like the finger wagging at you. If you love me, you'll obey me. That's not how we're to hear it. Think of your loved ones. Those that you hold dear in your heart. What's it look like to be in relationship with them? Do you want to displease them at every turn? Do you look for ways to make it hard in relationship with those that you love? No. You look for ways to be with them. Hey, I kind of I like to be with those that I love. And I kind of like to do the things with the people that I love that please them. That's what Jesus is saying. Those that love Him will obey Him. What has the love of God wrought in your heart? What has the love of God in Christ done for you? How has it shaped your life? Do you find yourself drawn more and more to obedience or more and more to rebellion? All of life is to be lived in the grace of God to the glory of God. This has application in every area of our, of our individual lives and our corporate life as a church. There's no area that's untouched by this notion of obedience. When we're at work, we're at work because God loves us for the glory of God and obedience to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called in that place to obey Jesus. When we're retired, we're retired for the glory of God because of the love of God in Christ, in obedience to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called to obey in retirement. When we're students in school, we're to live for the glory of God because of the overwhelming love of God, the grace of God extended to us by Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're trying to be the best possible mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, married, single we can be, we do so under the grace of God, because of the great love of God expressed to us in the person of Christ, to the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're called in those places to obey. When we're wildly successful, we are to the glory of God because of the love of God. When we're in the pits of despair, when everything has gone wrong and the wheels have flown off and we don't know what to do next, we're there for the glory of God because of the love of God, the grace of God. We're to live there in obedience to Christ because He loves us by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're wrestling through addictions, 
temptations, depression, anxiety. We're to live in light of the great love of God for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in that place. Because God loved us first. That's how we love. The church is molded and shaped when we realize how much God loves us in Christ. That's what shapes us. How much God loves us in Christ. That's what will produce obedience in the body of Christ on earth. Through Jesus Christ, the perfect Son. We're sunk into Him. We hide in Him. And in Him we live for the glory of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this, Your Word. As we see Israel shaped at Sinai by Your grace and love into a generous people who overwhelmingly gave, as we see their work transformed and ordinary work lived out as a result of Your grace, as we see their obedience all in response to Your grace, Lord, would You do that in our lives? Would our lives be marked by those who are shaped by Your grace and by Your love? Lord, because we love Jesus, would we obey? Would You do this in us? Lord, again, for Your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.